here for a special holiday edition of Super Mega Awesome Movie Review Madness! 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 And this holiday, we've got seven reviews for you. The Greatest Showman, Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, Downsizing, Father Figures, Pitch Perfect 3, plus a Netflix and chat on Iron Fist and the Defenders. So, let's get it started. Changing. No one ever made a difference by being like everyone else. You will have to excuse the uh, drop in audio quality. I am not recording at Stately Popcorn Junkie Studios over at Casa de Juan, as it is called, but I'm making do with what I got where I am. That being said, P.T. Barnum. Who boy, did not expect there to be a musical about this guy. Uh, apparently this is a passion project for Hugh Jackman, which makes me wonder, what, is, is he putting on that he doesn't know what's really going on with Barnum, or does, did Australia just not get the actual truth about it? I mean, granted it was already too late to listen to the dollop, because that came out earlier this year, but wow. Wow, trying to make this song and dance musical no, musical movie about P.T. Barnum feels feels very forced. Like, like, it, like I'm imagining, like, I always get the feeling that every time we do something, we try to tackle one of these more controversial historical figures in, as a musical and brush, up, brush over all of the terrible things they did. That we're getting every 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 time we get closer to the actual springtime for Hitler being a reality, but that what we're not talking about that we're talking about uh, the greatest showman and how it is not an accurate representation of the of anything historical period whatsoever. I mean, I guess you gotta accept that going in, but at the same time, one of my biggest gripes with movies that try to base themselves off of history is just completely skipping over the facts and making stuff up. I mean, it's one of my biggest issues with Professor Marston and the Wonder Women. And looking into this, it didn't take long because I, I, I started listening to the dollop as soon as I saw the movie. And I haven't finished yet, but already from the first... From when they first start talking about P.T. Barnum's show, uh, Exploitations, none of that is in the movie. Like, there is no Joyce Neth, the slave nursemaid to George Washington. There is no Zippy the Pinhead. They don't mention that Charlie, the, Charlie who played General Tom Thumb, was actually his cousin. None of the actual facts about P.T. Barnum are in this movie. So what do we have? We have some rags-to-riches story about an asshole exploiting the underclass, hoping to somehow make it into the overclass. Also, something about progressivism. Because that's the other thing, too, is... I always... Like, I'm a liberal guy. I'm a pinko commie bastard. I accept that. I acknowledge that. I also acknowledge that history does not view things in my point of view. More often than not, history is way worse than anything anything we can come up with. 
And the idea that P.T. Barnum was somehow this progressive hero making 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 these uh you know making these also rans these dregs of society the center stage and that that was his intention feels very feels very much like br- trying to polish a turd like Hugh Jackman tried to polish the turd that is PT Barnum so so hard he worked so hard to try and polish that turd but then even the stuff that makes it into the movie like the bearded lady like i mean they do not they do put charlie charlie they do put charlie in there the little person who was one of his first attractions but they don't acknowledge they he says he they don't acknowledge that he is he goes by general tom thumb they never he even makes it a point to not want to make him like he tries to pass it off as we are not making you a freak. We're not making you a spectacle. You're going to be an actual soldier. And it's like, dude, why you got, I mean, you're having him play Napoleon. Like just admit that you're an asshole. And the whole movie is trying to make this asshole somehow redeemable. And guess what? Even in the end, he is not. Just because you acknowledge, it ends at the point where Barnum goes from being in downtown Manhattan to having a circus te- to being in the actual tent outside of town, and like, no, you're ass, you're an asshole, you're awful, you put your wife and kids through hell, you abuse the, <laughs> I, I like, I'm guessing that the actual PC Barnum didn't stick with his own wife for that long either. <laughs> I haven't got, we haven't got the dollop hasn't gotten into the personal. You know, personal uh, information about P.T. Barnum's life, like his wife and kids. But seriously, dude, why this guy? And apparently, like, I guess Hugh Jackman's really trying to play off that this is some kind of passion project, that he's a big fan of P.T. Barnum and he's been wanting to make this for so long. And if that's the case, either Hugh Jackman doesn't know anything about P.T. Barnum or Hugh Jackman's an asshole. Like, this is the guy you emulate yourself off of? This is the guy you aspire to be? This is you, the guy you're so passionate about? This asshole, you know, exploiting, you know, the exploiting the people with disabilities, black people, like, PT, like you look at the P.T. Barnum's history, it's a lot of exploitation of black and disabled people. And it is, he is just a genuinely vile human being so to make it all about a song and dance about how great he is and he bring he you know he's a showman he's he brings joy to the people and it's like you're an asshole and you probably didn't pay your workers all that well either and it's it's all brushed under the rug and painted with pretty smiles and song and dance numbers from from the lyricist behind la la land which congratulations both your song, both movies you've written for sucked. I can't hum you a single bar from La La Land. I don't remember any of the songs from La La Land. And this, only I only remember because it's all generic garbage. That's the thing, too. In the movie, it features an opera singer, played by Sarah Ferguson, who sings pop music. Like, I get it. I get it. You're, you're, it's a pop musical. It's not going to be, it's going to take a lot of liberties, but it's the same thing with Phantom of the Opera. You're 
playing, you're you're supposed to be having this person that sings opera and operatic mu- and it's a diva and sings operatic music, and they and when you actually hear them sing, it's generic pop Broadway schlock. Like at least try to make something operatic. For God's sake, it can you can try at least to make it somewhat operatic so that you don't take us out of the movie. But not in this movie. Nah, can't do that. Can't try too hard. In fact, here's our song about be, about accepting yourself for who you are. You know, and that because that's what the freak show was about. Here, here are all the freaks and the also rans and the and, and the like. That's the thing. The movie lumps in together the th- acts like the bearded lady, the tall. The, the it was the Cardiff giant in actuality. For some reason, they switched it to Irish. Um, to- General Tom Thumb, and then a bunch of black, and then a couple of black people, like the black people who are who are. Uh, I think they're what? Are, what's the term? Uh, trapeze. They're trapeze artists, but they're lumped in with the rest of the freaks. That that's great, you know. So we've got the bearded lady, we got the mint, we got the little person, we've got the ju- we've got the giant, we've got the black people. Nothing, and it's hardly ever acknowledged. And of course, and of course, the the lady in the group, played by Zendaya, get the only aspect of her character is to hook up with Zac Efron. And I swear to God. In this movie, they made her look light, like lighter skinned. Like her brother, I don't know who, the actor who plays him. In the movie, the guy who plays her brother is full on black skin, like you know, like like um, like a Don Cheadle or you know somebody, some Wesley Snipes, somebody with a much darker complexion. And his sister is played by Zendaya, who looks like milk chocolate. And I swear they made her look lighter skinned because she was going to hook up with Zac Efron. Because I compare this to her character in Spider-Man. In Spider-Man, she looks, you know, doesn't, you know, doesn't look too out of the ordinary. She's, you know, she's average skin. You know, nothing seems too out of the ordinary with that. Here, I swear to God, they use lighting and makeup to make Zendaya look fairer skinned in order to pass her off in order, in order to pass off the romance between her and Zac Efron. Because God forbid that she looked like Lupita, Lupita Nyong'o in this movie. Can't have that! Oh, God. I don't know if that's the truth. It just... It's just something I noticed. Not only is her char- not only is the only reason for her character to be there to be a love interest, but I swear to God they made her skin much lighter and fairer. Than in her other movies. I swear that's something. So that's the thing that happened. I don't know. I can't. I, I can't speak to that. I haven't heard anything otherwise. It's just something I noticed. That's all. So the greatest showman. They put a lot of effort. Into polishing the turd that is P.T. Barnum. And all they did. Was come out with a shiny turd. So. If, if, I mean hey. If, if you're into. Big spectacle movies, you might want to try it. You just have to remember, it's all bullshit. Just like the real P.T. Barnum, all they're doing is selling you bullshit. Cake? Isn't that your weakness? Something happening to me? Am I am I shaking? Am I still black? Yes. Okay, we're fine. Everything is fine. It's all good. 
Next up, something that got better traction with other audiences, but that I didn't enjoy as much. Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle. And I gotta say, I, I, I don't, I, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that people do enjoy it. I don't want people not to enjoy it. It's just, I guess the things that stuck out to me were bigger sticking points than for other people. Because, like, I, I'm hearing it getting praise at, at, adapt, at trying to modernize the concept. But all, I'm, all I can think is, wow, this was really poorly done. Like, the idea is, it completely retcons the end of the last movie, where I think the board game ended up in Brazil, because I think they're speaking, speaking Portuguese at the end of the last movie when the Jumanji board game washes up on the beach. Here, the movie opens up with it washing on the beach, but it's still in America. It doesn't... And it's specifically some town in America, they don't say where. Some small suburban town in America. And the, and the son of the dad who finds it um, says, who plays board games anymore? And after playing, I think... It was 95, so I think it was Tekken. Something on the PS1. Uh, the Jumanji board game magically changes itself into a, a Super Famicom cartridge. In fact, let me double check. Let me look up Famicom. See what those cartridges look like. It, it was a cartridge. Uh, the the regular, Fami regular Famicom cartridges were square. And the Super Famicom cartridges were basically the size of a Super Nintendo. So it was smaller than that. What's this? Okay, I think those are some... Okay, those, those look more like it. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm looking at a picture of a Super Nintendo and Super Famicom cartridges. And it looks like the, the cartridges are way are like rectangular they look but and, and they're a lot smaller than their uh super nintendo counterparts um maybe it's not but the regular uh but those are like mock-up cartridges they may have been regular famicom cartridges not the not the uh yeah okay it looks more like regular famicom cartridges than the super famicom ones point is they there it's a cartridge that gets plugged in to an Atari 20... Wait, what are, their, what are those cartridges look like? Yeah, those are big, big rectangular blocks. They're not... So somehow, this game has PS... I'll say one... PS2. PS2 level graphics on an Atari 2600... With PS1 controllers and a Super Famicom cartridge. Not a Super Famicom, a Famicom cartridge. What the hell? Like, you couldn't have, like, easily. All you had to do was make it a disc and make it on the PlayStation. It's a Sony. It's a Sony. You own the rights to the PlayStation. Put the thing on a disc, put it in the, put it in the PlayStation 1, make it a PlayStation 1. Make the thing they find a PlayStation 1. They're using PS2 controllers. Make it a PlayStation 1. 
How hard is that? What was the PlayStation 1? PlayStation 1 was what year? 94. Perfect. Right in the wheelhouse. This is so easy. And for some reason, Sony decided to be like, well, no, we can't just use our own cart our own game system that we have the rights to. We have to make up some Atari 2600 looking thing with a Famicom cartridge, but then we'll use our super our PlayStation controllers. Consistency. That's all I'm asking for. And I get that it's a little nitpick, but it, but it's like it it's a level of incompetence that makes me think you couldn't have even tried. Just make it a PlayStation. Nobody's going to be questioning it. Nobody's going to be worrying about it. Oh, PlayStation. Plug this disc in and it's there. Fine. Whatever. Why did why go out of your way to make it so anachronistic? And like a PlayStation, if you don't if you're polyed up the graph like low, made the graphics a little lower, little like lower quality than standard uh graphics, then yeah, you could easily believe that PlayStation had that kind of menu. Did no one try? Nobody tried. Did no one, seriously, did nobody even try to think about this? Um, anyway, all that is, I mean, all that aside, like, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's just a nitpick about uh, aesthetics and, you know, consist, you know, in-universe consistency. But, but for the most part, eh, like, I didn't care like the like they the setup is Breakfast Club, again. So I mean, like, okay, whatever. It's 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 a bunch of stereotypes coming together, and then we learn more about them through their avatars when they get sucked into the Jumanji game. And after that, it does kind of play through a lot of the beats of the first Jumanji movie, as well as um, a, a, tackling some of the video game tropes like. The live systems, NPC uh, dialogue, as well as um, you know menu screens and and weaknesses and whatnot, and character stuff, and like how the main character avatar has no weaknesses while everyone else does. Uh, it covers a lot of tropes, but at the same time, it's still pretty like like juvenile and lack and not very well thought out. Like they want to try and do. A lamp. They wanted to try and lampshade the idea of the female badass in cutoff shorts and a tank top, and so they tried to lampshade that. But the thing about lampshading is, if you're doing it badly, you're still doing it. You can't just have the generic badass female char- female model character running around in in booty shorts and a halter top. And then say, why am I running around in booty shorts and a halter top? What's up with that, guys? Like, that's not really lampshading. That's you trying to be meta and being lazy about it. Uh, and the other, and like the other thing that really stood out to me that nobody seems to be talking about is the extended scene where the pretty hot girl, uh, the 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 girl who they they identify as taking Instagram photos. Uh, her her character becomes Jack Black, and Jack Black has an extended scene where he learns how to use his dick to pee. 
Nobody seems to be talking about this scene, how it has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. It's only there to laugh at <laughs> using a dick. It's all dick. It's an extended dick joke, and nobody seems to acknowledge its existence in any of the reviews I've seen. None of the reviews I've seen acknowledge it even once. And I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Like, did anybody else see that? Did nobody else see what I'm seeing? There is an extended dick joke about learning how to use your penis for the first time, and nobody's talking about it. Hello, elephant in the room. That being said, the main crux of the of the of the of the movie, the 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 four Avatar characters, five eventually, are the only are the reason to see this. Dwayne Johnson d gets to try and be more play a little more out of character, where you know. Instead of his, you know, while he does still do the, because that's the thing, Dwayne Johnson is a way better lampshade than Karen Gillan, sadly. Whereas Dwayne Johnson is still doing all the big, big, you know, like beefy Hollywood hero style uh, main character tropes. He's all, because he's being played by a wimpy guy in the real world, played by Nat Wolf, uh, he, Dwayne Johnson has to has to be able to play off that wimpy Nat Wolf character as well as be the beefy, hunky hero type. You know, Karen Gillan does try to be her, be, try to emulate the character that plays her, uh, who's more of like an Ali Sheedy type outcast girl who's always, like the main thing she does is hold her arms. Like that's her character trope is just holding her arms like she's cold. And Karen Gillan does her best trying to be that, but at the same time, Karen Gillan also doesn't really get much to do other than generic female badass stuff. Like, Matt, uh, Matthew Buck over at Projector said his favorite scene was Jack Black as the popular girl teaching Karen Gillan as the awkward girl how to flirt, and honestly, I found that more painful than hilarious. I didn't find it all that funny. None of the jokes really worked for me. I think the best one that worked at all was the was the pound cake bit at the end of the trailer you just heard. That was honestly probably the best joke in the entire movie. Most of the other jokes of the trailer have all been excised. There's a lot of chopping and re-editing done since that trailer came out. So, and there's another movie that suffered through that as well that I'm going to get into after the break. But, yeah, I mean, Jack Black, aside from Dwayne Johnson, is the only one to really emulate his character. So he, I think Jack Black does a better, I will say Jack Black does a better job at playing a teenage girl than Rob Schneider is, does. But at, the, you know, but at the same time, I think Jack Black was given better writing to play that girl. So I mean, like she's throwing in some modern, you know, there's the generic throwing in modern slang, whatever. But at the same time, you get to understand the character more as she is being portrayed by Jack Black. And so this character gets way more development that would have been interesting if it was actually her, but it's all done through Jack Black. And I think that is probably the best, you know, Karen Gillan sadly gets the short end of the stick, as it were, but she d still does her best to try and emulate the, her, her player character through her avatar. The only one who doesn't give a damn is Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart is in full-on Kevin Hart mode, doesn't even care. Doesn't even try to play a character. He's 
just I'm a Kevin Hart. I'm I'm I make short jokes. I I'm like, am I still black? You know, I talk like I'm Chris Tucker. It's the same Kevin Hart shtick, just now it's in Jumanji. And that's the worst aspect of the main character cast, is that Kevin Hart cannot even try to not be himself in a, in a role. He is only ever going to be himself whenever he plays a role on film. And that's why you, only have, you can only cast him as a stunt, in a stunt role, where he has to be a Kevin Hart-style character. Otherwise, expecting him to be some kind of actor is too much. I will say, so that, and that's the thing. They meet up with a fifth avatar in the game who is the kid from the 90s, and that avatar is played by Nick Jonas, who does a better job of acting as the, as the player than Kevin Hart does. Nick Jonas is a better actor in Jumanji than Kevin Hart. I guess that, I mean, I guess that goes without saying. I mean, Kevin Hart isn't all that great anyway, but yeah, Nick Jonas is actually pretty good. I enjoy Nick Jonas. The actor as like a somewhat leading man role than I than I ever did as a singer. Like I think he's a way better. Like he he has the he has that leading man uh, appearance, and he is a decent enough actor. I mean I, I could see him being, you know, being in the same kind of acting pool as like Liam Hemsworth, or um, uh, who's another one of those kind of generic leading man guys. Uh, I know Liam Hemsworth is the big one. Is the big one he reminds me of. But yeah, Nick Jonas could easily fit into those kind of roles, no problem. But yeah, other than that, like Bobby Cannavale is forgettable as the villain. He's a non-entity. Race Darby is probably the only the only other like real shining point in the movie because he gets to be an NPC and do a lot of the lampshading stuff on video games. But other than that, yeah, it's it's really forgettable. I honestly would much rather watch the original. And the original wasn't that great, but for what it is, it's a lot of fun. This one didn't feel as fun to me. This one felt way more, like, lackadaisical. I've, I've, I've used this description before, but lackadaisical. It, di it didn't want to try too hard. It wanted to be silly and uh, lighthearted, but not all that you know, touching or deep, you know, it just, it, it's, and that's why it ultimately is pretty forgettable. It's not, it, I really don't think it's going to stick with you. I mean, it didn't stick with me at all. I'm going to forget this movie as soon as 2018 rolls around. Um, all that being said, once again, every, a lot of other people seem to like it. I'm just, a, I'm just an outlier. I didn't have as good a time as it at it, but if you're into it, if you've liked what you've seen so far, give it a shot, you know? Once again, no, you should never take my opinion into account until after you've seen the movie. You are, you are the only judge of, a, of, of quality that you need to care about. You have to do things yourself. You can't rely on unless you unless you're... I mean, even that, I mean that's the thing. Even people who agree on men, on different on all kinds of stuff, and if you agree on each other so far, there's always going to be at least one movie, TV show, whatever, where you completely disagree on. So you have to be the judge of it yourself. So yeah, that was Jumanji. Welcome to the jungle. Eh, forget it for me, but maybe you'll have a good time.
Why did I downsize so that I could be here right now? I finally have a chance to do something that matters. You think we're in the normal world, and then something happens. Oh my God. And you realize we're not. Same as it ever was. And the last one before the break is honestly the best thing I'd seen in theaters this weekend. And it wasn't all that great, which says a lot. This is another really bad Christmas in terms of movies. Uh, but we're talking about Alexander Payne's latest movie, Downsizing. Now, I had heard bad things about this going in. And I wanted to keep an open mind. I wanted to see what, what, what people were talking about and make my own decision. And I, and I pretty much, and ultimately I ended up agreeing with a lot of the criticisms I had heard. And it's re it really is one of Alexander Payne's weakest movies. I can't say whether or not it's his worst. I've mainly seen nothing but good things from him. Sideways, The Descendants, Nebraska, all great movies. And here, this just wasn't one. And I wonder how much of it was the script and how much of it was just him not knowing how to tackle the subject. The basic premise being, uh, in an alternate timeline, we're about, we're about where the present is, and in, some, in a little bit of a distant future, um, they have discovered a means of miniaturization. Uh, team in Norway have discovered miniaturization, and they use it as a means uh, to market conservation. The idea being that you can downsize yourself and live tiny and thereby be doing and leaving a smaller carbon footprint on the planet. And that is the main crux. But then as the movie goes on, it piles on all kinds of talking points about down, about trying to introduce this new concept into reality. The idea that, oh, dissident gov governments are using it to punish their dissidents. Uh, it's also a class struggle where the rich can live well, but the poor still live in poverty, still live in great poverty, and now they're just small. Oh, it, it really doesn't do all that much for the environment. Oh, it's a way for rich people to hide their money and whatnot. Oh, it's taking away, it prevents, it, it, it ruins the economy for the normal people. Uh, but, and it's really, it's really scatterbrained. Ultimately, like Matt Damon, once he gets introduced, is the main focal point for everything that happens. And he's not really all that interesting of a character. He plays an occupational therapist at Omaha Steaks, and he decides to get shrunk to help save on money. And because much like the actual Matt Damon has been thinking about doing it to help the environment. And eventually his wife backs out on him, played by Kristen Wiig, and as soon as she backs out, she's gone, completely excised from the rest of the movie. And after that, he kind he he starts getting more and more, you know, he starts he he uh he gets involved with uh Christoph Waltz who plays a Serbian uh smuggler who smuggles who thanks to his who to his normal sized brother smuggles in goods for small people and through through um vaults he meets uh, i believe hong chow is the actress's name uh who plays a vietnamese dissident who got shrunk and was the only survivor of a smuggling 
of a plane to smuggle Vietnamese dissidents to America. And she lost her leg in the process. And that's how Matt Damon starts interacting with her and becoming befriending her and eventually forming a love interest that doesn't feel natural. It feels very forced. And eventually they end up back at the original shrunken colony in Norway, where they plant, where they predict the end of the world is happening because of something that has been talked about in the background. And the, and all the people in the original colony are planning to live underground. And like I said, it's all over the place. It, it wants to deal with, like, it starts off in this, this, like, suburban tiny community in, in Santa Fe, where after, after um, Matt Damon meets up with his, uh, one, of his one of the alumni from his high school, uh, played by Jason Sudeikis. And after that, he runs it. He, he, after the divorce, he meets Christoph Waltz, who's in, a, who's in the apartment above him. And then all of a sudden, then he's meeting uh, Hong Chao, who plays a Viet, you know, who's playing it, who's playing the Vietnamese very strong. The Vietnamese accent is very much almost on the stereotypical. Like, it almost sounds like a cartoon. But at the same time, I, you know, I've had enough interactions with people who spoke Vietnamese, who people were uh, who are Vietnamese and and speak with that kind of accent, that I know it's not. It, that's I know that's kind of how they talk, but at the same time, it definitely doesn't feel natural. It feels very, it it's almost it, it's almost like I said, it's almost cartoonish the way sh the way the accent is done on film, and like she's almost the butt of a lot of jokes. Because of because of her accent, and I feel like that's really bad writing. And then and then after Matt Damon meets up with her, then he becomes the sort of Doctor Without Borders, helping the poor who live on the outskirts of his suburban community. And then all of a sudden he runs in. Then all of a sudden Christoph Waltz takes them to Norway, where he meets the scientist who developed the downsizing procedure. And it's, and it never really answers the question. Like Matt Damon starts, like ends up in a relationship with uh, Hong Chao's character, and they end up helping all the people that live in the impoverished tenements outside of Leisureland. But it's not like it answers any of the questions it poses. It doesn't answer whether or not downsizing would have worked anyway with the environment. If more people did it, it doesn't answer whether or not you know. You know, it doesn't answer how they how they handle the actual problems of class that have been supplanted into the tiny. It doesn't answer any of those questions. It's just kind of like musings on oh, what if we got the shrunk shrink people in? Oh, what if what would really happen if we did this, if this and this happened? And it didn't. It just feels very. It it feels like someone's dream being explained to you, kind of. Like, they imagine, oh, they dreamed that they became small, and they got to meet the guy who made them small, and ooh, and it's all very, very nebulous, and it's never, and that's the thing. Pain can be very concrete with stuff. Like, the Descendants had him, ha had him try to handle loss and depression, Nebraska had had them dealing with a lot of family trouble struggles. Sideways dealt a lot with depression, 
and it does not shy away from the you know from the uh, the harsh realities of the of these topics. But here, it's it it feels very half-hearted. It doesn't feel like they went all in and wanting to, to like. It feels like if they made it more about Matt, da- you know, may- maybe Matt Damon. I don't know. I mean, that's the thing. The main movie is about Matt Damon discovering his own white privilege, pretty much. And that ultimately pretty boring. Like, I would have much be much more interested in the other aspect of it. Instead, we're focusing on a divorce, on a, you know, on a middle-aged divorcee who, who uh, finally decides to leave his own house and his own neighborhood for once. Like... He, Matt Damon is not a, you know, is not, does not exactly play a compelling character ultimately. And the people around him are way more interesting. And he's just along for the ride. And it doesn't, and that's kind of boring ultimately. So I, w- I was kind of hoping there might be something here. Like I was hoping that the premise would lead to something. And sadly, it doesn't deal with anything. It doesn't deal with any of the topics it raises. It's just kind of, yeah, what if? And then leaving it at that. So that's the best we got. A middle-of-the-road Alexander Payne what-if scenario about shrinking people. And we've saved the worst of the theatrical releases for after the break. You. You out there. You know what horror is? You like horror films. You like gore. You want to hear four badass women discuss and dissect modern and classic horror films. Join us at Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, a good ghoul's guide to horror. Oh! On the Gummy Cat Don't read the Latin. Do you know that in the world of the insane, you will find a kind of truth? The universe has a tendency to point in the right direction. Yes. Guys, my Negro spider senses is tingling. It's not the Soul Train, guys. Father figures. Does the name Helen Baxter ring a bell? It does more than ring a bell. She was like a dick whisperer. She's our mom. All we did was cut her. Hey, you want to see someone who can catch? Hit me on a bomb. Go, go. These last two were ultimately bad enough, I'm going to say it right now, to end up on my worst of the year list. They genuinely were some of the worst movie-going experiences I've had in this entire year. And they came... This is why I like to wait until the very end, because you never know what's going to make its way down the pipe. And sometimes Hollywood likes to just stick one in just before you leave, thinking, oh, nobody will remember this. 
but I saw it. I saw what you did there. So first up, Father Figures, originally titled Bastards, and written by a screenwriter who was one of the five or six on Office Christmas Party, yet somehow also has a writing credit under the name Hong Wen Mai for a Chinese film called Wished. And I, and I wish I had, a chi- had any kind of fan base in China to understand what this movie was and how some white guy went, assumed the name Hong Wen Mai in order to get this screenplay produced. How does, how does this happen? How does this happen and how does nobody talk? Once again, how is nobody talking about this? We just learned the new head of Marvel Comics assumed a Japanese name online for years. And yet nobody's talking about Hong Wen Mai, who when you... Yes, please. You listening at home. Google Hong Wen Mai. H-O-N-G-W-E-N space M-A-I. Hong Wen Mai. Google it. And the image that'll pop up is some pasty dude, pasty face white dude. And nobody knows what happened. Nobody knows how this happened. But there it is. It exists. And he made this. So maybe he's going to start, move over to China and make garbage for them instead. One can only hope. As for this, I don't know what to say. I mean, the premise alone, Ed Helms and Owen Wilson are twins. Owen Wilson's at least a good decade older than Ed Helms, and he looks it, and yet somehow we're supposed to buy that they're twins. I mean, brothers, sure. I could buy at them being brothers. They are twins. I know fraternal twins can happen where they're the same gender, why does the one twin look 10 years older than the other? That's just bad casting. That being said, no, no casting was going to save this movie because everybody is an asshole. Ed Helms is an unrepentant douchebag bitching that his mom lied to him about their dad. I, I made, you know, I dedicated my life to be to helping this man, and he discovered that the man that was their father wasn't their father because he was watch he watches SVU, and so he was watching an episode of SVU that goes into a foot fetish of the actor licking Olivia Olivia um uh, Benson Olivia Benson's boots, which. I, I'm pretty sure Olivia Benson, like, wore standard shoes. Like, maybe some heels, maybe some maybe some regular, like, walking day-to-day footwear. I don't think she was known for knee-high leather boots. Where did, like, this is their joke? Their joke is to have a fake, a fake episode of SVU where Olivia Benson, as a cop... Forces a suspect into cave into licking her boots because he has a foot fetish. 
What is this movie? What is this movie? Already, this is within like the first 20 minutes of the movie. This is happening. And Ed Helms is a... So not only is Ed Helms a douchebag about his mom not being honest and upfront with him about their dad, he's a douchebag to his brother because his brother is more successful and he's pissed about it. And the brother... And Owen Wilson points that out to him and... Only then does Ed Helms finally start to realize, oh yeah, I'm I'm a douchebag. But even then, by the, even by the end of the movie, Ed Helms is still a douchebag. He's just not as big of a douchebag as he was at the beginning. Anyway, uh, he he finds out uh, when their mom Glenn Close marries Harry Shearer, uh, who has who doesn't appear at any at any point during the rest of the movie after this scene. Um, he finds out that their mom has been lying and doesn't know who their father is. And the, and the movie becomes a road trip to find out who the father is by going from person to per from guy to guy that their mom slept with during that point in the, during the mid seventies. So first it's to Terry Bradshaw. Then they run into Ving Rhames while they're with Terry Bradshaw. Then they go find JK Simmons that J.K. Simmons leads them to uh, to to outside of Boston, where they find a guy who had recently passed, may have been their father, who was a cop, and then that leads them back to their hometown in Ohio, who to find Christopher Walken. And the whole time, it none of the jokes are all that funny. Like the the best they got are these old dudes talking about you know, having sex with their mom. That, that's their idea of a joke, is just talking about all of the, all the sex that they had, like Dick Whisperer. And, and like, if you watch the Red Band for this trailer, that's the kind of, like, they, this movie goes for a forced incest joke. This movie, as soon as they, like, here's the thing. As soon as they go to Boston, it's outside of Boston, it's, um, what's it, uh, Something Massachusetts, uh, uh, I forget. But it's somewhere outside of Boston, and as soon as they get into town, they uh, Ed Helms has a one night stand, and as soon as he has the one night stand, I I called it. I knew it was going to happen. The woman is the daughter of the guy they think is their dad, and so there's an extensive. The rest of the scene is dedicated to them clearing up the fact that it's okay. Because it wasn't actually incest. Because for some reason, these two assholes just assume you're our dad. Okay, let's have a... Like, there's only one of the dads. Only one of the dads actually has to have a... Actually has a blood test to confirm they're not related. And it's because they put him in the hospital. God, this movie is so stupid. So... We go through all of this. We go through all of this rigmarole, and honestly, I don't mind spoiling it because it just means that everybody in the movie is an asshole. Because it turns out they're adopted. So the whole and so the whole movie was pointless because Glenn Close just didn't admit that they were adopted. The whole movie. The incest, the the incest scare, putting people in the hospital, almost killing Cat Williams, which 
you know, was, who was superfluous to the movie anyway, the, all, all of this, all of the, all of the money spent going from Miami to wherever the hell JK said, New York to Boston, back to Ohio, all of that money was wasted because you couldn't just tell them they were adopted. Like, he can, he, all she had to do when she was confronted by Ed Helms was say, look, I lied about who your dad was because you were adopted. Because, and then tell them the whole adoption story. It's a touching story. And all she had to do was say that from the beginning. Why, why make them spend all of their money to go find a dad that doesn't exist? So yeah, everybody is an asshole, and then at the end of the movie, it gets all wrapped up with them living in Maui, be- and then it really, really forced exposition about the two of them developing an app with Cat Williams' character as advice from the universe. And it's a really poorly-looking app that where Cat Williams is on a very obvious green screen, giving you fortune cookie reading off essentially fortune cookie for lack of a better way of describing it it's cat williams reading out fortune cookie uh script that's it that's all their app is and glenn close looks into the camera and even and and with three million downloads yeah and it's really forced and it's really lame it's it's there was the it's probably one of the worst epilogues to a story I've seen in the last couple of years. Because it doesn't... All it does is just be like... It just assumes that people can live in Maui off of residuals from an app. <laughs> talk about not understand... You know, talk about not understanding, uh, you know, how something works. It's just like, oh, they can make... They make their money off of an app now. Also... Did they not learn how to diversify their portfolios? Because that was the whole thing that Owen Wilson's character didn't diversify his portfolio. So now, like, they don't go into anything further from the app. Like, did they have spinoff apps? Is that how they're able to afford it? Because there are more than one app. But do they diversify in investments? Do they invest in something else? Like, how are they able to afford in Maui off of a singular app that you spend three ninety nine on? Because you still have to. You know, pay residuals to Cat Williams, to the other developers. Like, this raises so many more questions that they don't know how to answer because the guy who wrote this is an idiot. The guy who wrote this is an idiot who assumes a Chinese name to write other scripts that are probably also garbage. So yeah, Father Figures. One of the most puzzling pieces of things that have ever happened. I almost wonder if some kind of... If this isn't some kind of money laundering scheme... Because it definitely wasn't something worth trying on. This wasn't something that people put any real effort into. This must have, you know, if this if someone came out and said this was a money laundering scheme by the by like the triads or the mafia, I could buy that more than this being somebody's idea of a funny script. Bye-bye, Bellas. It really does feel like goodbye, John. Becca. What are you doing? Don't. <sighs> if you cry, I'm gonna cry. Don't make that face. 
I'm not doing it. Don't make that face. This is my regular face. One good thing that I've got. And the last of theatrical releases was probably the worst of them all. Pitch Perfect 3. I'll admit, I fully, I never enjoyed any of the Pitch Perfect movies. The first one I turned off 30 minutes in because I knew I wasn't going to enjoy it anymore. And I couldn't, I just could not take it. I still haven't finished it. I made it through, I suffered through two. And I got through that one. And it was, it was still, and it was just, once again, the pits to sit through. And this is the crown turd of them all. Because this one has no idea what to do with these characters. It is... It is baffling the way they try to continue this story on. Because that's the thing. Easiest way to do it was to make it like a reunion special. Or to make it like... Focus more on Haley Steinfeld and the next generation of Pitch Perfect. Of the, you know, of the Bellas. And have the other characters come in as cameos at the end or something. Instead, they focus on Anna Kendrick quitting her prestigious job working at a record studio because she had creative differences with some white dude in dreadlocks. Like, seriously, the movie opens with the job that she worked so hard for to get at the end of the last movie. She quits that job because of some white dude in dreads making garbage music. And it's like, and, and for some reason, oh, she can't give up her artistic integrity. If she cared about artistic integrity, why was she working at a record studio? Like, why didn't she work, why didn't she, you know, produce her own music, do it, start an indie label? If it was about integrity? Because you don't go into working for a big company if you care about integrity. Uh, and then they have, they go, the, the old Bellas that have all graduated run into Haley Steinfeld thinking it's going to be a reunion concert where they all get to sing again because that makes sense and it's just the Bellas having a concert at an aquarium and for some reason these all all these other women their lives are so miserable because one works at a juice cart uh Amy fat Amy does stoop does terrible jokes pretty much that's that's rebel wilson's entire character is just terrible jokes that uh, that shouldn't have gotten past the editor and that are delivered half-heartedly by this point and then you've got um one of the girls working as a vet tech and it's like oh her job is so horrible she has to put her hand in a cow's ass which i know very little about veterinary tech veterinary uh medicine i do know from what little I've seen of it in media, that yes, you do have to stick your hands in animal asses. I mean, a cow, in order to you know massage its prostate, to to, to you know to to get to uh, apply medicine, to apply certain medicines, you have to go in there. There's a lot to do with a cow's ass in veterinary medicine. So I don't know what she thought. Veterinary medicine meant that oh, I get to treat sick cat and cats and dogs. And other animals, too. I mean, what did you, you're dealing in with medicine. Medicine is all assholes and genitalia 
and blood and semen and guts and feces and urine and pretty much the dis most disgusting. If you can't handle the most disgusting things to come out of a body, be it human or animal, you should not go into medicine. Period. So I don't know what the heck she thought she was doing that going into veterinary medicine and, you know, like, oh no, she has to put her hand in a cow's ass. Isn't this disgusting? It's a day in the life of a, veter of a veterinarian. This is what happens. So after they're all drinking because they're all sad because they don't get to sing, uh, one of them comes out of nowhere and says, uh, oh, my dad's in the army. He can pull some strings and get us on a USO tour. Okay. Talk about privilege, but okay. Like, you can't, like, of all the things to do, like, you couldn't, I don't know, go on uh, America's Got Talent. Or you couldn't uh, do some other kind of uh, acapella thing. You couldn't try to start your own tour as a touring acapella group. Like, there are other things you could do. Like, why all of a sudden is it the USO? Which, then it turns out, the USO tour is being helmed by DJ Khaled, who is putting on the tour to find his next opener. And the competition are not Mumford and Sons, two black guys, one at a turntable and one who uses autotune, and an all-female rock group called Evermoist, whose only point is to is for Fat Amy to make jokes on the name and then and for Ruby Rose to look intimidating and to crack wise at how lame the Bellas are, which they are. I mean, I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a fat white neckbeard in Akron, Ohio, who plays Dungeons and Dragons and watches Poke and watches the Pokemon anime. And I know for a fact that the Bellas are lame. And that may have worked for the first movie because they were apparently, if for those who actually were able to make it through, that the Bellas were outcasts. They were all outcasts. They were all weirdos and, you know, not part of the popular cliques in, in, in that college. Whereas what I remember, most of the P Bellas are pretty white girls that could easily be the popular chicks in any other movie. Britney Snow played the popular girl in Hairspray. Like, how is... How are we dealing... How are they making them the alt... The, uh, the alt... Alternative, like, weirdo hipster girls or whatever that don't fit in? I don't get it. I don't get this series. At any rate, um... Uh, they went so they don't get along on the USO tour, but then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the Bellas suddenly become the most popular of of the four groups, and then it it just completely derails because after that point, after after a certain point, it becomes about Fat Amy and her dad, played by John Lithgow, doing his best Australian accent, which. If you wanted an Australian, cast an Australian. Like, like Eric Bana. Eric Bana or Hugh, or Hugh Jackman's busy, but like, they're, 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 do you know how many um, Australian comics and comedic actors you could have easily gotten to play her dad? Like, why does it have to be John Lithgow 
putting on a very poorly done Australian accent. Why couldn't you cast an actual Australian for the gig if you couldn't get if the guy you got couldn't do the job? Like I love John Lithgow. John Lithgow is one of my favorite actors. He was the shining point in frickin' Daddy's Home 2. And here, they're forcing him to do an accent he's not that great at. So why? Why would you do that to him? Anyway, uh, after that, uh, you know, after Fatty, after a certain point, Fat Amy uh, refuses to help out her father, who kidnaps the Bellas, and the Fat Amy and uh, Becca have to go rescue them, and that's where the movie, it cuts back to where the movie opens with a cover of Toxic, and after they rescue the Bellas and arrest her dad, they, um, they, it, the whole thing ends with Becca being the opening act for DJ Khaled. And she open and because even though she's the opening act herself, she brings on the other Bellas to sing with her. And whoop-de-doo. And everything about this movie is just the laziest, could not give a damn about anything. Just, second one made, made twice as much as the first, pump another one out! And, like, like here's the thing. I learned this from the Double Toasted review. Apparently the aquarium they sing at, where they're supposed to be in New York, that aquarium is specifically in Georgia. And could have only been in Georgia, because it's the only aquarium in the United States, probably in the world, with its own whale shark. So they're trying to pass off this aquarium as being in New York when it's very clearly in Georgia because anybody who knows anything about that aquarium knows that it is in Georgia. On top of that, you've got the... You, everything is supposed to take place in exotic locales and like the south of France, uh, Italy, and Spain. Not specific places. Not Barcelona, not Madrid... Not uh, Nice, not uh, Milan, not Florence. They don't give specific cities, because then they'd have to show sites from those cities. No, it's Spain, and Italy, and south of France. Because giving specific details would mean trying. And they don't want to do that at all. And... It doesn't matter where because it doesn't matter where they they could have given a name at all because all they do is is do some interstitial footage of like here's sights from that city without the Bellas and then the Bellas on some studio lot going into a going into the hotel. Why send it in anywhere? Why send it anywhere at all? Why not just send it in Palm Springs? Also, if they're on a Euroso tour, one. Why would they go to Madrid? Why would they go to Spain, Italy, and France? Wouldn't they be going to like Afghanistan? I don't know, um, Iraq, places where the soldiers need the the soldiers that need the most entertainment would be. Why are all the bases they're going to in? I know. I mean, I'm asking a question because it's, it's almost rhetorical. Because we know why they did it. Because they wanted to shoot sexy cities instead of going to freaking Ta Kabul in, in Afghanistan. And like, oh no, here, you're performing for the U.S. troops in Baghdad. Nope, can't have that. No, we gotta shoot somewhere sexy that people would actually want to go. But we can't name an actual city because then that would be trying too hard. 
You want to know how lazy this movie is? They show a flashback with John Lithgow, who doesn't, who looks the exact same as he does in the present, as with young Fat Amy, who is wearing a My Little Pony shirt of the current iteration of My Little Pony. She wears a Rainbow Dash onesie, and it's supposed to be a flashback to when Fat Amy was a kid. This movie gives not one F. And I'm sorry if you like this franchise at all, they don't care. They could not care less about you. Because anything that may have been enjoyable about this series is dead by this one. It's like they just want it to end. And so they made the biggest piece of garbage they ever could. Didn't even try. And dumped it out. And just like, hope, hope, hope that the money would still roll in. This truly was one of the worst movies I had seen all year. The sheer annoyance and just lack of effort put into it really just pisses me off. More so than either of the first two entries. Because the first two entries didn't try all that hard. They just they aimed low. This one decides, ah, screw it, why bother? It Just do whatever. Make it stupid as hell. And I really hope that the audiences stop, stop giving this franchise money because it's not... It, if you care about... If all you want is acapella stuff... Listen to Pentatonics. Listen to uh, the Hall. Evine Hollins, uh, Peter Hollins' wife, was one of the actual members of the acapella group that the movie is supposed to be based on. Why don't you go listen to them instead of watching a piece of crap movie? If you, if all you care about is the acapella stuff, you can listen to other acapella groups. You don't need a piece of crap movie to give you acapella stuff. Oh well. Thankfully. That's all I had to see this weekend. I missed out on uh, All the Money in the World. I'll have to catch that sometime this week. But for, for the most part, I'm just about done with everything in theaters that I could catch uh, for 2017. So we've only got one more thing left to review, and then we can end, end, end do our, finish our penultimate episode. Salutations, ladies and gentlemen. It's the Popcorn Junkie here for a little Netflix and chat. Alright. I guess I shouldn't say one. It's actually two things. Because I managed to make my way through um, Iron Fist and the Defenders series. And... I gotta say, they definitely ended on a low point. Uh, ranking out the entire Netflix uh, Marvel series, Jessica Jones is number one. Best ca- love, best character they've added. Best overall story they've told. After that is Luke Cage. Uh, not as I'll admit, as much as I liked where Luke Cage went, and I admit that it's more comic booky, it d- it definitely started off more interesting than where it ended off. And I hope Luke Cage Season 2 kind of picks up where that first half of Luke Cage went and does more of that. But for the most part, Luke Cage was still a fantastic series, and that's because 
uh, the actor playing Luke Cage is phenomenal and is given is probably one of the best iterations of the character I have seen. And after that, Daredevil season one, uh, still a solid, amazing se- uh, season. Uh, season. Uh, season two didn't quite hold up, uh, but is still inter- you know still for the most part the first half is still really good. The stuff with the Punisher is excellent. It's when it starts getting into the hand that it loses interest for me. And I think that's true of most people. And then that's the problem with these last two, which is Iron Fist over the Defenders. Because the Hand are ultimately not that interesting a villain group. There's a, like, there's a reason they're parodied in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as the Foot Clan. Because they're, they're cartoonishly silly. And to play them straight is probably the worst thing you want to do is and but I hope but hopefully we've gotten the hand out of our system and we can focus on to more interesting villains because Daredevil season 1 showed what they can do with an actual villain with the, with the kingpin and 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 even the punisher was an, an excellent uh villain for Daredevil to face off with but the hand are just not all that interesting of villains. They never were that interesting. I mean, Madame Gao is a great villain herself, but the Hand as an organization is just, you know, easy. It's easy to come up with, like, ooh, because they're everywhere and you can't trust anybody. And they're like a boogeyman. They're like a boogeyman and Illuminati organization. And that's just not all that interesting. I mean, that's the thing. I think Nash pointed this out, the fact that it's just, oh, it's magical ninjas. Ooh, and really, it's not, they're not, they're not really that compelling an organization. Like, I think, like, I'm thinking of, uh, in, I played the, I played, um, Mars, Mar, uh, Marvel Puzzle League, I think, Puzzle Quest, the, the, uh, app game where it's a match three sort of thing with Marvel, and, but it does have an ongoing story, and it deals with, like, Hammer, uh, uh, Justin Hammer, I think? Uh, the Hammer Corporation, as well as uh, Norman Osborn, having uh, a, a, an equivalent, uh, you know, an equivalent organization to Shield, stuff like that is more interesting than the Hand. And I really hope that the Hand is out of the way now, because I think that they they're way more interesting villains. For like Iron Fist could easily go into some of the cosmic, not cosmic, but uh, mystical elements where where Doctor Strange is, and like even hope like. If if Marvel cared at all, Iron Fist and Doctor Strange would e- could easily have a couple of crossover episodes. Same as with Spider Man. The fact this this Netflix series would be made infinitely better if at one point Tom Holland bumps into them on the street and it's like who's that weirdo kid? Or like they show scenes from the Spider Man movie as as like news footage. You know things things acknowledging that this guy exists in their neighborhood and. You know, maybe you know, maybe one time uh, Danny Rand runs into Tony Stark because they're both wealthy businessmen, and like Stark is working on something, and he hears Rand has an opera. You know, Rand is Rand may have been stealing. Rand may have been stealing their tech, and he could easily, uh, you know, e- easily ha- ha- you know talk about Danny about learning about who may be stealing stuff from Stark, and I don't know. You that know, you could easily integrate the Netflix series into the wider Marvel Cinematic Universe, and the fact that they don't is baffling to me and insulting. Like, the whole point of the Cinematic Universe was the idea of 
everybody's crossing over with everything. It's one big universe, but we can't have anybody show up on S.H.I.E.L.D. We can't have anybody show up on the Netflix series. They have to be, they can only be in the movies. We can't write, God forbid our contracts allow them a couple of spots in the Netflix series. Come on, Disney Marvel. What the hell? What is your deal, man? Do you want a cinematic universe or do you not want a cinematic universe? Because you can cross over in all the movies you want, but if the if the TV series are supposed to take place in that same universe, you can't just ignore them. You have to allow them to integrate into the wider universe. That's all I'm asking for. But for some reason, there's some kind of stupid infighting at Marvel where the movie studio and the television side of things, they don't want to play nice with each other. In which case I say... Screw both of you. We have one studio. It makes movies and TV. Done. What the hell? At any rate, uh, Iron Fist was okay as a series. Um, Danny Rand is definitely a weak point because he's just not all that written written all that well. He's kind of weak because he's at he's at both points like a mystic and a you know a privileged you know white boy. So, I mean, it tries to juggle both of those, much more so in The Defenders than in uh, the, the main series. But, once again, the hand is not all that interesting of an enemy to fight. And Danny Rand's struggles ultimately don't kind of pale in comparison to stuff with, like, Luke Cage or Jessica Jones, especially. Those two had much more compelling stories than what Danny Rand had. And The Defenders... While it did have some great highlights, it had some great moments. The the Chinese restaurant scene in, I believe, episode three, three or four, is the highlight of the entire miniseries. The scene was before them just catching up, learning about each other in that Chinese restaurant is the highlight of the entire miniseries. And the rest of the ser- miniseries has some great, like, whenever it's the four of them interacting, it's solid. Danny Rand and Luke Cage don't quite have the chemistry that they need to be uh, Power Man and Iron Fist and, like, the Heroes for Hire thing. I do hope that that, that gets better. I do hope that they, like, maybe they'll cross over in their season two, in their second seasons of their shows, and there'll be some more crossover, and eventually we will end up with, like, a Heroes for Hire series. I would be down for that. Heroes for Hire, Misty Knight, uh, Power Man, Iron Fist, maybe Jessica Jones. I'm down for that series, because I know they set up Misty Knight into the Defenders, and I can't wait for her to get her full accoutrement. For those who don't know, in the comics, she has, you know, she's basically a cyborg, and they are setting it up perfectly for her to get that, for for her to get the thing that she, for her to get her super-powered arm, and I can't wait. And, you know, all, all, all being said, it's not bad. I wouldn't say it's bad. I would probably watch it again. But comparatively, Iron Fist and Defenders are definitely the weak links in the Netflix series. I still need to catch up on Punisher. And by next by next year, we'll start getting into like Jessica Jones and Luke Cage. But for the most part, the Netflix series has been great. It allowed for aspects of the Marvel Universe that would take, you know, that probably would not work on film. And that need a, a TV series to kind of iron out and showcase. And I'm glad that they have the Netflix series, but they just need to, ca- to get over themselves 
and allow for more crossover with the main cinematic universe. That's my biggest gripe, is that they just can't get over themselves, and I really wish Marvel and Netflix and, and Disney would just be like, you know what, since you two can't play nice, neither of you exist, you're all one, you know, either you play nice or you're fired. They, they have the power to do that, I don't see why they don't. Somebody should, someone should suggest that to Bob Iger. Um, anyway, uh, I can't speak to what, what's going to come now that Disney owns the rights to a bunch of, of, the, of the Fox properties, like Fantastic Four and, the, and all of the X-Men stuff. Who knows how that's going to integrate? Who knows if it'll integrate at all? Who knows what's going to happen? It's still in the infancy stages, but we'll have to wait and see what, what, uh, the current, what that current deal uh, means for you know, these properties as a whole. Because it's not just Marvel. Uh, Star Wars, the original A New Hope, was owned by Fox. So maybe this deal could just as easily have been about Disney acquiring the rights to the original Prince. So maybe we'll finally get an un, untouched, re, you know, just remastered version of the original trilogy for a change. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, that about does it for reviews. There's nothing really a lot to talk about as we head into the end of the year. So uh, we'll do a quick trailer talk and uh, call, call things for the holidays. Uh, first up, uh, the one I did miss this week that opened today as of recording, Christmas Day. Uh, first up, the J. Paul Getty movie by Ridley Scott, All the Money in the World. This one's going to be very interesting to talk about. You carry a gun, Mr. Chase? I never bothered. Ruins the line of your suit. You used to be a spy. My child is a prisoner. $17 million. All they will take his eye, his ear, the hand. And don't tell me you don't have the money. Inspired by true events. My former father-in-law only buys the best. It's time for you to do whatever it is he pays you to do. Let's hope you're half as good as everything else he's bought. We need to pay the ransom, Mr. Getty. Have the money to spare. No one has ever been richer than you are at this moment. What would it take for you to feel secure? More. More. I'm gonna find your son. From Ridley Scott. You're protected from every threat. Unless that threat happens to be me. Paul, I just wanna go home. Paul. The truth. Is stranger. To walk away. He's my son. I can't walk away. Than fiction. I don't think this is about money. It's about power. Power. Business. Terror. Tell him I'm coming. No! This one's gonna be really interesting. Uh, if you remember, uh, 
this was the movie that Kevin Spacey was originally slated to play J. Paul Getty. And then as soon as the allegations hit and became public against him about his sexual assault, then Ridley Scott made the choice to excise all of Kevin Spacey's scenes from the movie and replace him with Christopher Plummer. I gotta say, I like Plummer more than Spacey. We didn't get to see a lot of Spacey as J. Paul Getty, but you can kind of tell he's trying to act through a lot of makeup. But uh, this one, but for um, Christopher Plummer, it's automatic. It's automatically like an, an improvement just because there's a man who's much more, you know, doesn't have to act through any makeup and can and can just be, you know, act just as himself. And Plummer, oh, just just from the little scenes in this trailer, he looks just, he plays it just like, just the perfect encapsulation of that kind of asshole that Getty probably was. And once again, it's inspired by true events because I'm guessing they prob- they're probably not a lot of, there's not probably a lot of facts to know about this sort of thing. Either they're classified or people aren't telling the truth, or they're just maybe, or just maybe the people who know the things are dead. It's hard to say. I, I can't speak for how accurate the movie is. I'm gonna have to look into that once I see it. But uh, from what I see, it looks like a solid thriller. I can't wait to see how uh, how um, Ridley Scott does. Uh, I'll hopefully get the chance to see that this week. Uh, the other one to see that I'll be much easier to see because it's on Netflix. Now, I, have, I don't usually do this. I don't usually play trailers for stuff on Netflix, but I definitely am going to check this out before the year's out because I hear all kinds of stuff about it. Bright. Why is there a fairy in the Birdseed area? Good afternoon, officer. Fairy lives don't matter today. That's it right there. I'll take the little homie out LAPD style like you do. Oh, and uh, you keep doing all your gangster stuff. I'm just trying to sell my house. Don't worry about that. Everybody's just trying to get along and have a good life. All of the races are different. Just because they're different doesn't mean anybody's better or worse than anybody. Hey, uh, where's the diversity hire? I got a dude in my car. I didn't ask for it, but the whole world is watching. What? Okay, you don't like me. Man, I'm not out here to be your friend. I need to know if shit pop off that you got my back. Can't hide it, Ward. Humans have physical tells. Like the face. What's my face? The human who needs a lot more conjugal love type face. Do not wink at me like that. All Westlake units requesting assistance. Three Adam Nine, show us en route. Shouldn't we wait for the cavalry? We are the cavalry. What is that? You're not stealing that wine. You gotta get out of this neighborhood. They're gonna kill you, then me. And 
that's when the stupid shit's gonna start. Not afraid of the dark. Oh. Magic wand. We have to secure it. I'm already knowing ain't nobody got my back. They don't teach that at the academy. No, they do not. I am not afraid. I am not afraid. They're gonna keep coming. I am not afraid. I am not afraid. Let's do it. in a prophecy. We're in a stolen Toyota Corolla. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. Number one, uh, if you haven't heard already, there is, uh, you know, the, uh, the writer of this, Max Landis, is the most recent uh, Hollywood uh figure to be, you know, to be called out for sexual assault and misconduct. And I've been watching this unfold mainly through Twitter because I follow Lexi Alexander, the uh, probably best known as the director of Green Street Hooligans and Punisher Warzone. And she is very, you know, she's much more uh, familiar with the, with the people involved in that. And it has been a, a dumpster fire of people trying to backpedal and show support for Landis, despite the fact that, by all accounts, Landis has always been kind of a prick. And it's not surprising, because he is the son of a famous Hollywood director, that he was probably a privileged little douchebag growing up. And that showcase, and that shows when uh, he, you know, in the way he treats other people, you know? I mean, at first, it was just him miss uh re you know miss uh understanding ray's character in the in uh the force awakens he he's the one he was the main f person to call her a mary sue which was a complete you know misrepresentation of her character arc i mean she's not the best written character in the force awakens but she's nowhere near it's a complete that calling her a mary sue completely misunderstands ray the force awakens and the very concept of the mary sue so Landis was kind of an idiot, but it turns out he's also, you know, a douche, you know, this, that kind of douchebag. The one who, uh, you know, abu you know, abuses and assaults women in his vicinity. And women have wanted to come forward, and it wasn't until now that the women felt comfortable enough to do so. And Lexi uh, has also known some of his victims and has openly talked about it without giving their names, and unfortunately, a bunch of other people in Hollywood, a bunch of other filmmakers, writers, have would much rather try to hitch themselves to Max Landis in the hopes of getting their stuff, you know, more publicity than be, than with his victims. And like they they call they try to paint Lexi as unhinged and angry and like you know try to play her off as unreliable instead of instead of like admitting that Max Landis, oh, might just be a douchebag. Because it's not like that's hard to believe at all. And what sucks is, Landis was a guy I didn't hate. I liked Chronicle. I even liked American Ultra. I, but, I, you know, he is a, it's, it's just one of these things where 
everything he touched, everything he's everything he's made, whether you like it or not, has been marred by him by his by his actions. So we'll have to see. I think that's Antoine Fuqua directing. Let me see. Antoine Fuqua. Am I mis am I misremembering who the director is? Maybe I'm thinking of somebody else. Equalizer Training Day, Magnificent Seven, Olympus Has Fallen. There's a Training Day TV series, huh? I missed that. Yeah, I'm thinking of somebody else. Who was the director of Suicide Squad? It wasn't Antoine Fuqua. Um, David Ayer. Uh, David Ayer, who I think who I think worked on a. He was End of Watch, Suicide Squad, Sabotage, Fury, Street Kings. Where's uh, writing? Yeah, he did write. That's the thing. He wrote Tra Training Day and SWAT before, um, and Fast and the Furious, uh, the first one, before uh, becoming a director. So that's who it was. I'm David Ayer, not Antoine Fuqua. But, uh, so yeah, we'll see. I like the concept behind Bright. I, I, I don't want it to be bad, but if it is bad, then at least, you know, then it's not, then it's not hard to see, you know, you know, who's at fault if it's bad. Um, but yeah, that's, that's one thing that people have been talking about this weekend. I'm going to have to check out over the next week. Uh, but that about does it. So, uh, with all that said, it is time for the plugs. If you are listening to this podcast, you are most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date with all the new episodes as they come out, and check out our other fine programming, such as the, uh, our D &D, my D&D podcast, Tragic Missile, uh, I highly recommend the Ultimate Showdown podcast. It's a debate podcast about who would win in a fight, and there's a tournament style to see who would be the best out of 16 and we've also got uh, Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, as you heard, as well as Once More with Feeling. And uh, Maji Day should be coming out regularly. Uh, I do that with Mike over at Game Kiwi, where we talk about Japanese culture and media. And uh, Jim should be working on the next episodes of Rihanna Podcast Generated pretty soon. Those should be out, those should be out before the year end. And... Uh, yeah, whatever you like, we should probably have something for it. Uh, check out G-U-M-B-I-E-C-A-T-Networks.com. And uh, also, uh, we'll, I will announce if uh, I run out of space for the um, episodes in Squarespace, and if I have to make, uh, make SoundCloud the uh, alternative archive of the podcast. I'll keep you all in the loop for that. Because uh, we're coming to the coming to the 100th episode, and the closer we get, the sooner we may have to look into archiving stuff. Uh, we'll, we're, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Uh, uh, but uh, if you don't want to go through our website, you can always go through whatever podcast app you use. We are on Google Play and, I, and the iTunes Store, so uh, if you find it through there, or whatever third-party app you download... Um, if you want if we aren't on your podcast platform, be sure to let us know and we'll try to add ourselves to it. And if you like us, leave a five-star rating and review and let people know that you like us. Uh, you can also share us on social media. For us, the social media home is popcorn junkie, uh, facebook.com/popcornjunkie. That's where all the big announcements will come from. That's when I when I announce 
seeing new movies and when new episodes come out, as well as bigger, big, you know, any kind of major changes to the podcast, any, you know, anything else, you know, anything of that nature. Uh, you can follow us at on Twitter at Corn Junkie Pod. That there, I'll do the there. You'll get the Facebook feed. Plus, you can join me for trailer talk, where I comment on the trailers I play before a new release, and Munch Along, where I comment on the movie as I'm watching it, be it in theaters and it's bad, or at home and can do so at my leisure. Uh, you can also check me out on Instagram. That's I've we've kind of cut back from two posts per release to just you know just posting um the main the main announcements on there but that's uh, that's on instagram at popcorn junkie podcast we're also on stop we're also on stardust and there's where all the main reactions come out for when i see a thing uh that's on the stardust app at, for popcorn junkie podcast or just popcorn i believe popcorn junkie maybe popcorn junkie that's where i am on stardust so if you want to see my initial reaction reactions to something check me out on P- stardust at popcorn junkie and if there's anything else, yo, um, I've all, you know, if you haven't been paying, if you haven't been joining me, um, on the weekends I do a Twitch stream where I play video games on Twitch at Popcorn Junkie Podcast, Popcorn Junkie PWH, short for plays with himself. So uh, if you want to join me, I'm playing, I'm working my way through Cuphead now, and we've also started doing Pokemon stuff, and I'm about to add some new stuff to it soon. Uh, I'm planning on adding a third slot. Uh, for something special. Uh, if you were there Saturday, then uh, you you know what it is. But I got to get the stuff ready for it uh, for this Saturday. But it, we've moved from Friday nights to Saturday afternoons. So if you want to join me over there, that's uh, it's on twitch.tv slash popcornjunkiepwh. And if there's anything else you want to say to me, any kind of feedback you want to give, any kind of feed, any kind of you know comments you want me to relay to the audience. Any kind of anything at all, send all of that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. That about does it for this episode. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and I wish you all a very happy holidays and a Merry Christmas. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by the M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.dvdark.com for more of his artwork. <laughs>